or I was hoping they might just keep hanging out at the front to get a front row seat for the sermon. I know most people like to keep a buffer zone, so if they wanted to hang out in the front step, I'd be all right with that. I invite you to bow with me one more time, and let's ask the Lord to bless his word. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for this privilege we have this morning to bless these children and to dedicate them to you. Uh, We thank you for your good work that you're doing in this church family, for the way that you are um, blessing families and blessing this congregation. And so, Lord, now I just ask that you would bless this word and that we, as uh, principally as parents, but also as as, uh, grandparents, as aunts and uncles, as um, uh, those who are just uh, fellow church members, we're all part of the same family, brothers and sisters in Christ, I pray that this word uh, would be received and that you would speak through me, your servant, and may the words be yours, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, there's a story of a father of four young, energetic children. And this father was a statistician by trade. And believe it or not, this particular father had never before looked after all four of his young children for an entire day alone. And so, his wife, of course, wanted to change this situation. And so, one Saturday, he reluctantly agreed with her that he would watch them for the entire day so that she could go on a shopping trip to the city. And so upon her return, the thoroughly frazzled father simply handed her a stat sheet with the following figures. Tied shoelaces 15 times. Blew up balloons 5 per child. Average life expectancy of said balloon 10 seconds. Spills on carpet 3. Band-aids applied 4. Broke up fights 7. Dried tears 11. Warn children not to run across street 26 times. Number of times children still ran across street 26 times. Number of Saturdays I will do this again zero. <laughs> now I don't know about that last one if she let him get away with that, but nonetheless, it shows how parenting can be. And it's been said that being a parent, it's like a full contact sport with no days off to rest. The fact is, from the moment your child first enters this world, takes their first breath, you, with your first child, you become a parent. And from that moment forward, you are now responsible to this child, you're responsible for them, with the express aim of guiding them to a point of maturity where they are capable of becoming responsible for themselves when they step out from under your direct care and into the world of adulthood. Of course, as Christian parents, we want to launch them out into the world as adults on the firm foundation of Jesus Christ. We want to launch them out firm in their faith and in their character, properly prepared and equipped to serve God and to make their way in the world. And with that aim in mind, I now invite you to turn with me to this morning's text in 1 Samuel chapter 2. There in 1 Samuel chapter 2, We find a a fascinating story, and in the last child dedication service that we did, uh, I focused on the first part of the story, which is, of course, the the part of the story we like as it pertains to Samuel. Well, Samuel is a part of this story as well, but it focuses more on the other side of the story, which is a cautionary tale of the high priest Eli. 
who, while by most measures, priest Eli was a spectacular success as a high priest, he was in many ways a catastrophic failure as a father. And while Eli did a wonderful job of training his young protege Samuel, his apparent lack of instruction and discipline of his own two sons named Hophni and Phinehas, say those names a couple of times, it sounds like a folk band, doesn't it? Hophni and Phinehas. If it's not a folk band yet, it should be. His own two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, he apparently did not do for them what he, had, what he did for, for Samuel. And this led to disastrous consequences. I want you to listen to how they are first introduced. 1 Samuel chapter 2, 2 verse 12 introduces Hophni and Phinehas this way. Eli's sons were wicked men. They had no regard for the Lord. Now, that's a scathing indictment of anyone, let alone a couple of PKs. And in case you're wondering what PK means, I'm not talking about pastor's kids. I'm talking about priest's kids. So it works either way. But in the King James Version, this statement, Eli's sons were wicked men, is translated more directly from the Hebrew, which is uh, this way. It says, now the sons of Eli were sons of Belial. The sons of Eli were sons of Belial. The Hebrew word Belial means directly wicked, worthless, or evil. It eventually became a common term for the devil. And the Apostle Paul, in fact, uses it that way in 2 Corinthians 16, pardon me, chapter 6, verse 15, when he writes, What harmony is there between Christ and Belial? So what the, what the scripture is essentially telling us about these two PKs, Hophni and Phinehas, is that though they were physically sons of Eli, the high priest of the nation, spiritually they were sons of Belial, sons of the devil. That is how wicked they were. Now before we go any further, let me fill in a little bit of context for you. The story takes place many years before Solomon built the magnificent permanent temple at Jerusalem. And so at this time, the portable tabernacle, from the same period as the time of the Exodus, the tabernacle was located at Shiloh, a small city north of Jerusalem. And so this is where all of Israel had to travel in order to to offer their annual sacrifice to the Lord. Now at that time, Israel did not yet have a king. And so Eli acted as both high priest and judge as the leader of the nation. Now, by the time this story takes place, Eli is a very old man. In fact, he is 98 years old. And he has led the nation by this point for 40 years. And extremely successful by most standards. But now his two sons, his chosen successors, they are the ones who are to continue on his priestly duties after his death. And it was their priestly duties in which their first offense is given. Verses 13 to 16. Bert read it for us earlier, and it describes how it was customary for the priest's servants to thrust a large three-pronged fork into a pot or whatever instrument it happened to be in which the sacrificial animal was cooking and to give the priest whatever portion of the boiled meat the fork happened to bring up. And this was the way that the priests could be taken care of and fed for serving the Lord. So this was a provision for the priests. Whatever that fork happened to stick into, that was their meal. That was their meat. That was their portion for serving the Lord. However, the sons of Eli, they wanted roasted meat instead of boiled meat. 
They wanted grilled steaks. You know, they didn't just want any old boiled meat. They wanted the good stuff. They wanted the choice cuts. And so Hophni and Phineas, compelled by their motivation for steak, they, in fact, compel their servants to extort the best portions of meat from the person who comes to present their sacrifice. And so before the fat was burned and before the meat was boiled, they would say to them, give us the raw meat. Now, according to the law of Moses, the fat was not to be eaten, but was to be burned as the Lord's portion of the sacrifice. But however, if the worshiper who was presenting the sacrifice balked at this request and they refused to hand over the desired portions, the choice cuts of meat before the fat was burned, the sons of Eli compelled their servants to take the meat from them by force. Now, to me at first glance, reading this, it it seems kind of obscure. Like, what does this really matter? It doesn't seem like such a big deal. I mean, who here doesn't prefer grilled steak to boiled meat? Really, like I prefer grilled steak to boiled meat. Anyone else here in the same category? Yeah, a few of you. So we like grilled steak, and so we get it. Okay, maybe they weren't going about it the best way. Like, what's the big deal? But I want you to listen to what the big deal is. Verse 17 says this. This sin of the young men was very great in the Lord's eyes, for they were treating the Lord's offering with contempt. So you see, the big deal is that this offering didn't belong to them. It belonged to the Lord, and it was in fact intended to be an atoning sin offering on behalf of the worshiper presenting it. This is a big deal. But Hophni and Phinehas were putting their own selfish desires for a stake ahead of the sacred purposes for which the sacrifice was in fact intended, atoning for sin. And in this way, they were in fact sinning against both the Lord by depriving him of the offering, and also they were um, forcing their servants to participate them with them in their crime by making them compel the people to give the meat to them. But now we see that their crimes don't end there. We jump ahead to verse 22 and we learn that in addition, they were also sleeping with the women who served at the entrance of the tabernacle. So these would have likely been young women who attended to the weary pilgrims who journeyed to Shiloh to offer their sacrifice. They would have attended to them with perhaps providing lodging, food, fresh clothing, that sort of a thing. And so again, we see Hophni and Phinehas indulging in their own physical appetites, their own desires, and they're compelling these young women to join them in their sin. Another serious offense for anyone let alone a priest. But now the kicker. And this is where we're going to focus this morning. All of this was happening under Eli's watch. Verse 22. Now Eli was very old, and he heard about everything his sons were doing to all of Israel. Now it's abundantly clear in this text that Hophni and Phinehas had been doing these wicked things repeatedly for a very long time. These weren't one-off, one-time mistakes, but established patterns of wicked behavior. And so it begs the question, why did Eli only become aware of these things when he's a very old man? Why? Why did it take so long? How did he miss the signs earlier? Why didn't he do something sooner? Now, to be sure, by this point, he's 98. He's been ruling the nation for 40 years. His sons have been running amok for who knows how much of that time. 
Tongues are wagging. People are talking. But somehow, Eli is the last to hear about it. The worshipers knew. The ladies certainly knew. The nation knew. Everyone knew but Eli. How is that possible? Well, a clue is given later on in verse 29 when God sends a prophet to confront Eli for his failure as a father. And he says to him, Why do you honor your sons more than me by fattening yourselves on the choice parts of every offering made by my people Israel? Why do you honor your sons more than me? Now, it seems that Eli had deliberately been looking the other way for quite some time. He clearly had some idea, some indication of his son's trick with the meat. But because he also appears to have liked a good grilled steak, he chose to remain in willful ignorance of how, in fact, his sons were bringing him these choice cuts. You see, Eli didn't want to know, let alone believe that his precious little angels were, in fact, little devils. But in doing so, Eli had actually been playing favorites, putting his sons ahead of the nation and God himself. And yet, to Eli's credit, once he finally does become fully aware of what his sons are doing, he confronts them. Verses 22 and 23 we read. So he said to them, Why do you do such things? I hear from all the people about these wicked deeds of yours. Then in verse 25, he tells them directly, If a man sins against another man, God may mediate for him. But if a man sins against the Lord, who will intercede for him? But now I want you to listen to this. It's the saddest line in this entire sad story. Verse 25, second half. His sons, however, did not listen to their father's rebuke. For it was the Lord's will to put them to death. That's a line that just jumps out and grabs you. If there was ever an application for the term too little, too late, this is it. It was too little, too late. Because we see here that Hophni and Phineas, by the time their father rebukes them, their hearts were as hard as Pharaoh's during the time of the Exodus. And just like with Pharaoh, where finally, at the end, the Lord hardened his heart, I believe the same is here with Hophni and Phinehas. They were beyond the point of return. And so God had sealed their judgment. It was now his will to judge them, to put them to death. Because it's clear here that Hophni and Phinehas have no regard or respect for their father whatsoever. They don't even give a reply. There's nothing listed. And it seems apparent that Eli had never trained or disciplined them when they were young. So why would they listen to his correction now that they are old? And to be clear, Eli's sin was not in having bad children. His sin was in raising them inactively, parenting them passively, and disciplining them far too little and far too late. You see, even now, when he finds out the extent of what they're doing, he doesn't, he doesn't dismiss their service. He doesn't denounce or report them publicly. He doesn't even banish them from the tabernacle. Eli did not even set one corrective limit on them. And in the end, when all was said, nothing was done. And the consequences are absolutely devastating. The priesthood would be stripped from Eli's direct line of descendants. The Lord even says that none of the men in his family line will live to an old age, but will be cut short in the prime of life. 
Then just as God said, both Hophni and Phinehas were killed in a battle with the Philistines on the same day. And on top of it all, the Ark of the Covenant was captured. Following this uh, catastrophic defeat at the hands of their enemies, we read in 1 Samuel chapter 4, verses 12 to 17, of how a messenger came to Shiloh, bringing Eli the terrible news of the army's defeat, his son's death, the capture of the Ark of the Covenant. And in verse 18, upon being told, we read this. When he mentioned the Ark of God, Eli fell backwards off his chair by the side of the gate. His neck was broken, and he died. For he was an old man and heavy. He had led Israel 40 years. Now right about now I know how you're feeling. This is a dark and heavy story. So where's the sunshine? Where's the good news? Where's the silver lining? Well here it is. Eli's third son. An adopted son. A boy named Samuel. Because for all of Eli's catastrophic failures and consequences with his own biological sons, Eli is still primarily remembered most for his success in raising and training Samuel, who upon his death would take his place as the new high priest and judge of Israel. For intentionally interspersed throughout this narrative is the stark contrast between Hophni and Phinehas' rebellion And all the while, Samuel's obedience and growth in the Lord. It begins in chapter 2, verse 11, referring to Samuel. The boy ministered before the Lord under Eli the priest. Then the next part, we read about the two sons' trick with the meat. Then verse 18, we read, But Samuel was ministering before the Lord, a boy wearing a linen ephod. Then right after, we learn about Hophni and Phinehas' sexual sin. And then right after, we read that it was the Lord's will to put them to death. Verse 26 shifts entirely, and it says, And the boy Samuel continued to grow in stature and in favor with the Lord and with men. So here on one side, we see two sons going entirely the wrong way and interjected throughout is, But Samuel grew in the Lord, grew in favor grew in wisdom, grew in stature. So what can we take away from all of this today? Well, I believe that God has given us all aspects of this story, the good, the bad, and yes, the ugly, so that we can learn both from Eli's success with Samuel as well as his failure with Hophni and Phinehas. Now, of course, every God-fearing, Jesus-loving Christian parent would agree that they want their kids to turn out more like Samuel and less like Hophni and Phinehas. Is that safe to say this morning? Yeah, I'm getting nods. We, we want our kids to be Samuels. In fact, there's a good reason why one of those three names is still in common use today, and the other two are hard to pronounce and get laughed at, right? There's plenty of Samuels around, not so many Hophni and Phinehases. We all want our kids to be like Samuel. We want them to commit their life to Jesus Christ, to actively follow him to seek his wisdom to guide their decision and actions both now and throughout life. And I'll tell you, that's my greatest desire for my children. And I'm sure if you're a parent here today or if you're a a grandparent, it's your desire for your children and grandchildren as well. But this is where we all have to stop and acknowledge this doesn't happen automatically. Sadly, many parents value their children's other activities more than growing in the faith. Music lessons, sports activities, education, family activities, future careers, all these things get prioritized ahead of seeing their children commit to Jesus, his church, 
and growing in faith. But then, even if you do prioritize the right things, just being raised in a Christian family, PK or otherwise, going to church, Sunday school, youth group, or Bible camp, those things don't guarantee that outcome either, not by themselves. In fact, recent studies have shown and personal experiences would back this up that an alarming number of young people who are raised in a Christian environment when reaching early adulthood leave Jesus, the church, and living the life of faith. Now I'm going to share a few key insights on this from Dr. Tony Evans' book, Raising Kingdom Kids. And as Dr. Evans puts it, using the analogy of a relay race, he says on this issue, there is a failure to transfer the baton of faith. A failure to transfer the baton of faith. So in a relay race, there's the baton. One runner starts with it, they hit the second part, they pass the baton. It passes on. Think of it generationally, the baton of faith being passed. And he's saying there is a failure to transfer. And it begs the question, why is this happening? Why does one child turn out as a Samuel and the other as a Hophni? Well, first, we must acknowledge that God has given each person and, yes, each child a free will. And in that free will, they must come to the point of personally choosing to believe in and follow Jesus for themselves. And as much as we want to, we parents just can't do that for them. God has not made it that way. We cannot choose for them. And yes, it's true that in many instances, parents have diligently made every effort with God's help to teach and model and instill in their children a genuine faith in God and a love for him. And yet the child still chooses to reject the faith. When that happens, it is painful. It is painful for the parent, but there is still hope. And I love what Dr. Evans says about this. If your kids have gone off course and you have done all that God has asked you to do, then pray for a strong wind from heaven to blow them back to him. And make sure you keep the porch light on so they will know that home eagerly awaits their return. And I just love that line. Pray for a strong wind from heaven. Now, we all love gentle breezes on a summer's evening, and those are nice. But what really gets our attention are the hurricanes and tornadoes, right? And, and I, ha- I have to say, I don't know about you, but I've got more than a few kids and I'll just say, as a caveat here, I consider all the kids who have come through youth group over the years my kids. So I have a lot of them. I have more than three kids. And I've got more than a few kids who I am praying for a strong wind. And I don't care whether it's a hurricane or a tornado or whatever it takes, God knows. But I'm praying for that strong wind to blow them back to God and back to home. And I'm praying that I'm keeping the porch light on for them. And so if that's you as a parent, if that's you as a grandparent... Don't lose hope. Don't lose hope. Continue to pray with perseverance and urgency for your children that God in his wisdom will know exactly what kind of a wind it takes to blow them back to him and his care. But now having acknowledged that that very important factor of individual free will, nevertheless, scriptures place an extraordinarily high emphasis upon parents raising up their children to know, love, obey and follow God. In fact, just as with our example with Eli, God squarely places the primary responsibility of transferring the baton of faith from one generation to the next on us as parents. 
And yet, in so many cases, the transfer is being fumbled or dropped. And so I ask again, why? Dr. Evans gives this answer. He says, The single greatest reason why we're losing our young people today is that the home is no longer the place where faith is being transferred. Parents, the primary purpose of your home is the evangelization and discipleship of your children. You cannot outsource this vital component in the rearing of your children. Their discipleship requires your time and commitment. Now, I'm going to say right now, this in no way, in no way diminishes the role of the church, Sunday school, youth group, VBS, Bible camp, or Christian education towards this goal. But all of those things are intended to be a supporting role to what is already happening in the home, not a replacement or a substitute for what isn't happening in the home. Now, maybe Eli thought that because his sons were growing up in the Lord's tabernacle, you know, their dad was high priest, they were constantly in the environment of God, maybe he thought they would just catch the faith by osmosis. But whatever the case, the case, clearly that didn't happen because we read flat out they were wicked and they did not know God. So make no mistake, the passive, permissive, pandering approach that Eli took with Hophni and Phinehas only led to disaster. And now obviously not all consequences will be so dire. But I believe God has put this story in Scripture to stand for us as a stark warning that we as parents need to take our God-given responsibility seriously. These children are a sacred trust from him, and our highest aim is to give them back to him today and forever. And what this story tells me personally, for me as a dad, is that for these exact same reasons, I cannot for one second take the salvation and discipleship of my children for granted or leave it to others. Just because they're PKs, and not priest's kids, pastor's kids, and just because they're growing up in the church and in the environment of God, it's still not a substitute for Leanne and I actively engaging with them about the faith personally at home, along the way, and in every aspect of life, wherever we can. And yes, I can say with a 100% degree of certainty and experience that this requires time and commitment, and we fail often. But this is not a once a week thing. It's an everyday thing, day in, day out, that requires, yes, intentional effort, perseverance, discipline, and yes, loads of grace for where we as parents fall short. And so I'm in no way saying this is easy. I'm right in the thick of it. But as a dad, I'm saying that my kids' eternal souls and futures are worth whatever I can invest into them with God's help and more. Because at the end of the day, just as with Eli, God will hold me accountable as a father, not for my children's choices. He will hold me accountable for my choices of whether or not I did everything I possibly could to teach them about God, to demonstrate his love for them, to model for them what a life of faith looks like, to discipline them when they go off track, to pray for them, and do everything I possibly can to point them to him. And I know that's a mouthful, I know that's a lot, but that is exactly what God expects us as Christian parents to be making every effort to do with his help. One of the incredible examples of someone who did just that, an incredible mother, 
You may have heard of her. Her name's Susanna Wesley. Susanna's father was a minister, and she was born in England in the year 1669 as the youngest of, get this, 25 children. 25! Susanna was married at 19 to a man named Samuel Wesley, also a minister, and not to be outdone, she had 19 children herself. Her husband, however, was often away attending church meetings, planting new churches, and evangelizing. And so the primary responsibility of raising those 19 children was hers. She always wanted to do big things for God, but her biggest contribution unquestionably was raising those children to serve God. The godly mother decided from the very beginning, before she had her first child, that she would spend one hour each day praying for her children. And she did that throughout her life. And in addition, she would take each child aside for one full hour each week to discuss spiritual matters. So do the math that by the time the 19th came along, that's 19 hours a week. That's a half-time job just doing one-on-one spiritual instruction with each child. But she stuck to it. In addition, she expected each one of those children to be able to read the book of Genesis by the time he or she was six years old. She had, yes, high expectations for her children and stern discipline, but she also modeled grace all the while. And so while today modern parents, we would look back at her and call her a strict disciplinarian, look at the results. Most famously, her two sons, John and Charles Wesley, practically changed the world for Christ. And it's said that they did as much or more to advance the kingdom of heaven as the Apostle Paul himself. John, of course, was the great preacher who sparked the powerful Reformation, the revival movement called the Great Awakening that spread across the countrysides of England and into the colonies of America, including Canada. And, of course, his brother Charles was probably the greatest hymn writer of all time. His songs include such classics for Easter as Christ the Lord is Risen Today and at Christmas, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. Susanna's Susanna Wesley's great legacy is her children. She dedicated herself to point them towards Christ. And so this morning, while we have called it a child dedication, I say again, it is more accurately a parent dedication. For we as parents are dedicating ourselves to give our precious children back to God for their salvation, for our blessing, and yes, for God's glory. Amen. Heavenly Father, this morning, we have looked at a challenging scripture passage. And Lord, at first glance, I have to say, I sometimes wonder, why do you put these stories in the Bible? They're they're not glamorous, and there's terrible consequences. And yet, Lord, I acknowledge so humbly that you put these in, the good, the bad, and yes, the ugly, as cautionary warnings for us that we can learn from mistakes as well as successes. Because, Lord, while we do acknowledge Eli's success in how he mentored and trained and instructed Samuel, you also held him accountable for his failure with his two sons, Hophni and Phinehas. And so, Lord, I pray for myself, for every father, for every mother, for every grandma and grandpa, for every aunt and uncle in this room, Lord, that we would learn from these examples, to not repeat the mistakes, but instead endeavor to do the right thing, to invest in these children, to pray for them, to invest time, to discipline them when necessary, to instruct and correct them along the way. And all the while, Lord, rely upon your grace 
knowing that we're human, we're going to fall short, but you never will. You are the perfect Heavenly Father. And so, Lord, I also pray for those children who have strayed, who, like the prodigal, have left their father's home, have left the faith. I pray that we, like the, the, the father in the story, we would be eagerly expecting their return. We would be praying for that strong wind of heaven to blow them back. And that, Lord, we will be so ready to welcome them in your embrace. And we pray for that day, Lord. And we pray for our children, that every one of them will be found in you. According to your will, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.